So uh, I am Jordan, uh, one of the pastors here at City Life. Um, most of the time we have Pastor Dale up here preaching, but uh, this morning I have the pleasure of bringing God's Word to you. Um, today we are talking about Psalm 8. So we're going through our series on the Psalms, and uh, we're just working our th- way through a few that we picked. We're not going to do all 150 because that would take us forever. Um, but uh, I am excited to get to bring you this psalm um, Let me pray, and then I'll discuss a little bit about why I'm excited. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this morning, and God, we thank you for the richness of your word, that um, it encompasses so much that we can't even take it all in in one sitting. Um, We read it again and again, and we get something new every time, and the Psalms are no exception. There is just so much richness and beauty and depth of emotion here, and um, God, I pray that you would help us to see what you have for us this morning in your word, that you would open it up to our hearts and that you would quicken our souls to be next to you. In Christ's name we pray. So I'm excited for this psalm um, because it's um, kind of a beginning in a sense. So the psalms were divided up into five different books, and it's not really under any particular order. This was done a long time ago by Jewish scholars. Um, we don't know exactly why they decided to divide them the way they did, but we are in the first book of the Psalms, and it encompasses Psalms, I believe, 1 through 42 or 1 through 41, one of those. And uh, this is the very first Psalm in this book that is considered a Psalm of praise. There are only three in this particular book that are Psalms of praise, so it's kind of a, a rarity for this section, um, but it is an awesome piece. I am going to uh, read it real quick if you would like to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, I will be reading Psalm 8, verses 1 through 9. It's a short one, so it shouldn't take us long. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place. What is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him a ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. This is a psalm that was written by David. Uh, We're not sure exactly when in his life he wrote it, so I don't have a whole lot of backstory to go along with it, but I honestly don't think it really matters. I think David could have written this at almost any point in his life, and it would have been just as true the the day before or the day after. One quick note, if you noticed at the very top, it says, for the choir director on the Gittith, a Psalm of David. So we don't know a whole lot about what a Gittith is. Um, Scholars generally believe that it is a stringed instrument, probably from the city of Gath, but we have no pictures or really knowledge of what it actually looked like or sounded like. We just know it's an instrument. So there's a piece of information for you. Um, The psalms sometimes have structure to them. They're poetry, and they were set to music, but sometimes there's a deeper structure that kind of hints at what the the writer is trying to get at. 
Um, a lot of the Psalms are written in what's called a chiasm. I'm not going to get too deep into this, um, but it's kind of like it's written in brackets. So you'll notice at the very beginning and the very end, it starts and ends with the very same thing. So those are the outer brackets. That is, uh, Lord, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth, beginning and end. And then if you look and study the, the passages just inside that, you see that it talks about uh, God's reign and then man's reign in his dominion. And then inside of that, it talks about um, God's work and our work. And then in the very middle, it talks about humankind's dignity and worth. Um, so we're going to go through that a little bit. Um, that just brings us right to our very first point. For the outer structure, God's glory is vast. And that is from Lord our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. God's majesty is on display throughout creation. Wherever you look, you can see something that speaks about God. You can see his creativity in a sunset or in a field full of flowers um, or in the variety of life. You can um, understand the laws of nature and how creation works together in such an amazing harmony and unity. And you can understand that it's kind of like a, a very intricate machine. And, you can see the, the order and design that God put into his creation. Um, and when we truly understand how complex even our own bodies are, even down to the very cells, are very complex and intricate, and there are trillions of them that make up a single human being, how amazing is the person who created that? It's, it's unfathomable. God has such ingenuity, I can't even express it. And then it talks about You've covered the heavens with your majesty. When you look up into the sky, you see the, the, the calm blue. You see the radiance of the sun. You see the, the pale moon or the twinkling stars. How can you not look up and just be in awe from time to time? I know it's easy to get used to because it's there every day and every night, but if you really stop and think about it, it's quite amazing that we have this amazing ball of fire that's an ex humongous explosion and yet, nobody dies. It warms us, it keeps us alive, and sustains us. Um, and at the same time, we have these little pinpricks of light that are unbelievably far away, and yet we get to look at them and enjoy them and draw pictures out of them. <laughs> um, have you ever been out to the desert or the mountains or far away from the city lights and looked up at the stars? It's quite a show, isn't it? We rarely get to see that here because of all the light pollution, unfortunately. But when you really get out there and get to look at the vastness and the amazing just design and creativity of the sky itself, it's amazing. I, I can remember being a kid and looking up at the stars. Did you ever, as a kid, ever lie out in a field and just look up at the stars? Did you ever try and grab them? Didn't it, didn't it kind of feel like they were just right out of reach? The wonder of a child. I mean, but yet, no matter how high we climb, no matter how big of buildings we create, no matter how high we fly, they're always just a little out of reach. Amazing. This brings me to one of my favorite passages in Scripture that talks about this very much. This comes from Psalm 19. The first four verses, it says... The heavens declare the glory of God, 
and the expanse proclaims the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words, their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out into the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. Night after night, day after day, they pour forth speech. Now, obviously, they're not talking up there audibly. That would be kind of weird. But what it's saying is that when we look out at them, they are telling us something about their creator. They are speaking about his humongousness, about his creativity, about his power, about his love for us even, that he would create something so stable that we could understand the seasons, that we could navigate our world by the light. It just, it, it takes my breath away when I really sit and contemplate what God has created. And how much more do we as modern humans have reason to appreciate God's creation? Like, back in the ancient times when this was written, like, yeah, you could look up at the stars and kind of wonder, like, yeah, it's up there. We don't know how far away it is. We don't know how big it is. But now we have actually a pretty good idea that some of these things are so immensely far away that none of us will ever get there in our lifetimes. Probably a hundred generations may not even get to the next star. It, they're that far away. The, the nearest star, if we could travel at the fastest speed in the universe, it would take us 40 years to get there. 40 years. And we can't even come close to the speed of light. And yet, some of those little pinpricks of light are not stars. They're whole galaxies filled with billions upon billions of stars. And yet we call them a star because they look like one to us. Amazing. The universe is immense. They, they have now come up with an es estimate for how many stars that we can see in the observable universe. And it's somewhere in the septillions, I believe, is the most recent that I have heard. So that is um, one followed by, let's see here, 24 zeros? That's a lot of stars. Obviously, we can't see them all by, with our naked eye. We have to get big telescopes out, but it's amazing. That is the work of God's fingers. How big are God's fingers? And then when we come to verse 2, it, it gets a little confusing. Like, we've been talking about the universe and how majestic God is, but it's almost as if he cut and pasted a line from another psalm. Like, he, he takes this right, hard right turn. He starts talking about infants and strongholds and enemies. What's he doing here? If I asked you to think about or name something glorious, what would you name? Some people might look to nature like we just did. Some people might look to great works of art, masterpieces, music. Uh, some people might name great structures like the Great Wall of China, the Burj Khalifa, the, the Pyramids of Giza. Those are all pretty amazing things. Some people might talk about the great tomes of wisdom from the ancient world or the empires that ruled the known world, because obviously none of them have ruled the entire world. We look at these things and we say, wow, how amazing they are. But yet God has something a little different. There's something peculiar about the way God likes to display his majesty. And that brings us to our second point. God has a peculiar way of displaying his glory in weakness. This is why he's talking about infants. Can you imagine anything more helpless, more weak, more defenseless, more needy 
than an infant. They can't walk. They can't speak, defend themselves. They can't even feed themselves often. They can't even hold their own head up. Like, they can't do anything but eat and go to the bathroom and sleep and cry. But yet, the author of the psalm says that God uses these infants to establish a stronghold. His majesty is somehow on display through infants. Now, the psalmist doesn't go into detail here. He doesn't say, well, this is a baby's crying or this is the look on a baby's face when it's laughing. It doesn't really describe what he's talking about here. So we've got a little bit of mystery, unfortunately. But we do have one thing that gives us a little clue. We actually have this verse interpreted for us by Jesus himself. And when he interprets it, we actually see a fulfillment of this verse. So, out of the mouths of, of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries in order to silence the avenger. Let me set the stage a little bit. The Pharisees were a religious elite. They were the top dogs of the, the faith community uh, in, in Palestine. This afforded them great power and honor, sometimes wealth, and these are things that they kind of like to have. So they didn't really like being upstaged by Jesus when he would out-authoritize them on the scriptures or when he would point out the error of their ways. They didn't like it because they might lose their place. So they chose to oppose Jesus rather than worship him. So this part of scripture happens on Palm Sunday. It's the week that Jesus uh, ends up crucified and uh, betrayed later on. This is the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the whole town is cheering for him. This is the triumphal entry. This is their Messiah that has come to save them and rescue them. And they're all cheering and, and um, applauding. They, they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They are proclaiming their Messiah is here. Then what does Jesus do? He goes to the temple. And he kicks out all the money changers. He upends their cart, and he basically kicks them out. He, he upends the order that has so carefully been laid. And as, as he's in the temple, all these people that are lame and blind and sick start coming to him, and he starts healing them at the temple. Another display of his authority and power in the midst of uh, Jewish society. As this happens... Um, for some reason, I did not put the reference in here, but I know this is in Matthew 21. I thought I had put this in here. Anyway, um, so the children come out and they start praising Jesus in the same way that the crowds had praised him earlier. They, they shout to him, Hosanna to the son of David. This is a reference to Jesus being the Messiah that had been promised their savior from long past. All of these things really ticked off the Pharisees because he was upstaging them in a number of ways. Not only was he being uh, triumphantly proclaimed the Messiah, the one that God had sent, but he also kicked out the people who were making the money in the temple, which I would assume helped them have their power. And not only that, but even the children, the little children, were singing his praises. So, that was the last straw. 
So they go to Jesus and try and get him to stop the children. And he replies, yes. Have you never read? You have prepared praise from the mouths of infants and nursing babies. Now, scholars uh, have looked into this. It's a little bit different wording than what we have. Jesus here is actually quoting the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. But it's interesting that it was translated this way. Jesus here is interpreting that out of the mouths of infants is praise. These children are praising him rightfully as God. And God has ordained this. And not only that, but it seems to shut the Pharisees up. Because this is the end of it. Like, Jesus leaves town after this. There is no more argument. So we see a fulfillment of the verse that we read, that it was to silence the adversaries. Out of the mouths of babes, God has ordained praise. In fact, we see a similar pattern throughout Scripture. We see the repeated pattern of God choosing so-called weak vessels to display his glory. For example, we have Moses. He was a convict on the lamb. He had been living as a shepherd for 40 years. He knew nothing really about the power structure in Egypt anymore or anything how to, to do anything. He was even a stutterer. He wasn't a great speaker. But yet God chose him to free his people from Egypt. Or Joseph, he was one of the youngest of his 12 brothers. And his brothers didn't like the fact that his father had given him the blessing, the, the, the double inheritance. So they sold him into slavery. And then from slavery, he gets accused of an inappropriate relationship that he did not actually have and gets thrown into jail. Like, where's the hope of this guy? Like, he's, he has no future. But God has ordained his future, and he ends up being the second most powerful man in Egypt. And because he's the second most powerful man in Egypt, he saves his family from a famine. King David himself, the writer of our psalm, he was the youngest of his brothers, kind of considered the runt. So there was a, a prophet who said that his father Jesse was going to have the next, his, one of his sons would be the next king of Israel. So he starts bringing his son to the prophet, brings the oldest, nope, not him. He brings the most handsome, nope, not him. The most charismatic, nope, the strongest, nope, not him. They go all the way down, and there's only one left. Like, you can't mean David. He's the runt who looks after the sheep. You can't possibly, well, go fetch him, we'll, we'll see. Lo and behold, God chooses the weak vessel who ends up becoming a mighty warrior for God. We see this time and time again. We even have a few scriptures that talk about how God loves to use weaker vessels. In 2 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 11, it says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have treasure in clay jars, so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the body of death. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be displayed in our body. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that Jesus' life may also be displayed in our mortal flesh. 
So Paul is writing to the Corinthians here talking about their persecution and the things that they face and how we as mortal humans have the honor and dignity of carrying God's glory to the nations. Imagine that. In his other letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 29 through 26, he says, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. So no one may boast in his presence. So God loves to take people that are broken, that are tired, that have nothing to give, people that are poor, people that are desperate. People, God loves to take those people, fill, him with, fill them with their spirit, with his spirit, and send them on mission. Because really, God's Spirit is all you need to do what God calls you to do. He will empower you. It's no amount of money, no amount of connections, no amount of strength or knowledge will allow you to do what God calls you to do. Only the Spirit. That is why God loves to use the weak people. When God chose his people in the Old Testament, he chose the Israelites. He didn't choose the philosophers that were the Greeks he didn't choose the, the mighty Persians that were conquering kingdom after kingdom. He didn't choose, he didn't choose the Romans that were so great at, uh, at administration and building and things like that. No, he chose the Jewish people who had nothing else to their name. The only claim to fame they have is that their ancestor, Abraham, had faith in God, and God honored that. That's all they have. And yet we still see them today. So it doesn't really matter if you're not super talented, if you're not charismatic, nor does it matter how you've messed up, how broken you might be, or what's been taken from you. God can use you. And God will love to use you if you'll let him. So as we continue on into verses 3 and 4, um, let me read them real quick. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is, human being that you what is a human being that you remember him, a son of man that you look after him? So as we've talked about the night sky, things like the Grand Canyon, a mountain, natural disasters like an earthquake or a tornado, all these things make us feel really small. Has anybody been to the Grand Canyon? One? All right. Did you stand at the edge and look over? Yeah, we did church field trip. Nice. And you, did you feel small? Yes. Yeah. That is almost the universal experience that I've heard from anyone who's gone to the Grand Canyon. I have not been myself. I've been to mountaintops, and seeing the immense horizon and mountains just spread out before you, you, you feel absolutely tiny. But you don't have to go to these amazing places. Like I was saying earlier, you can look up at the stars and wonder in awe. All these things make us feel small, insignificant. But with all we know about God and a planet of over 7 billion people, 
perhaps a little more humility would be more appropriate. We, we tend to boast. We tend to be proud. Perhaps that would be a little bit more appropriate. But we are more than mere creatures, too. That brings us to our third point. We are small, but God is our glory. So here David is pointing back to the creation narrative, where the seven days of creation, God creates light, God creates the water, the earth, all these things, all the animals, the plants, um, and then finally humankind. Um, when we look at the immenseness of God's creation, we, by contrast, see that mankind is very small. Why should God care about that? Should care about us? So I've got a couple of pictures, and then we'll go to a clip. So let me set the, the scene for this. So this picture was taken, I think, back in the 70s. And uh, it was taken by the Voyager 1 satellite. Some of you may recognize it. Some of you, most of you probably don't. But it's kind of a famous photo. So the, the satellite is about 60 billion kilometers, if I remember correctly, away from Earth. And uh, it was passing near Neptune, I believe. And they decided to turn their camera a different direction and take a picture. And what they took a picture of, if you want to go to the next slide, that little dot from 60 billion kilometers away is the planet Earth. Kind of seems insignificant, doesn't it? So we're going to see a, a clip here of, uh, from the, the recent series called Cosmos. And the voiceover is going to be uh, Carl Sagan, who is a fairly well-known scientist, uh, astronomer. Um, and he's actually, I believe, an atheist. Um, I could be wrong about that, but um, he does have some amazing insights into our place in the universe. So if you want to go ahead and play that clip, let's listen. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on the mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic uh, arena. So that ended up being the wrong clip. Um, I, I edited it down a little bit so it would be shorter, but you get the idea. Like, looking at that little picture from Voyager 1 and seeing the entire Earth as a tiny speck of dust, 
against the backdrop of an immense, vast cosmos that we can't even measure. It kind of gives you a sense of how small we are, how insignificant we should be, and yet God chooses to interact with us. Why? Let me paint another picture for you. Imagine President Kennedy in the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So the Soviet Union, our great Cold War enemy, is sending nuclear weapons to Cuba, threatening the mainland of the United States. Nuclear war is imminent. World War III is on the doorstep. Kennedy walks out his step, out, the White House, out front of the White House. He looks down and he sees an anthill. You know what, guys? I'm going to take a day off. I'm going to take care of these ants. Are you nuts? We've got war on... Like, you can't just stop being president. You've got to do stuff. You can't look at... You can't worry about these ants. They mean nothing. We're all going to die unless you do something. Don't worry about those ants. And yet, the creator of the universe would stoop down to care for something insignificant. Now, I want to be careful here because in a grand scheme, yes, we might appear insignificant, but we're not entirely insignificant. If we continue reading into the verses 5 and 6, we get a little bit bigger picture. So the psalmist writes, you made him, meaning mankind, a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. We see a little bit of a different picture. First, he asks the question, why should God give a rip about any of us? We're so tiny. We're so insignificant compared to the vastness of all that God has created and all that God is. But we have evidence that God does care, that God has made us more than just mere creatures. So looking through Scripture, I see at least three different ways that mankind is gifted glory by God. And we'll go through them. The first one, our glory is built in. These all start with B's because I'm a Baptist and you know, alliteration. Um, so I get this from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 27. Um, I'm going to skip a little bit in the middle because it's not necessarily directly related. Um, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then skipping down to 27, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created him male and female. This is talking about the very essence of who we were created to be. God created us in his image. Not like any of the other beasts of the field, but God has created us to be like him in some ways. This means that every human being, every person who has ever walked the face of the earth has intrinsic value. Every human has dignity and value and worth. This is why Christians tend to protest things like abortion and euthanasia. Now, sometimes we get a little pig-headed about it and we don't do it in ways that honor God, but we, we protest these things because we see a fetus as a human life full of dignity and worth created in the image of God. Just the same as we see an elderly person who, yes, they might be unable to get out of bed. They might not have a great quality of life, but they still have dignity and value. 
And so we fight for people. We fight for the least of these because they have value as God's created image. If we continue on to the next verses, um, we see that God, actually, this goes to our next B, uh, God has bestowed glory to us, bestowed glory on us. So Genesis 1, 28 through 30, it says, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So we see... God blesses people, and he gives them dominion over the rest of his creation. He, he gives us control. He gives us uh, the role of caring for the rest of the earth. Sometimes this looks like us planting gardens and pulling weeds. Sometimes this looks like us caring for livestock. Sometimes this looks like us having pets. Sometimes that looks like us not throwing litter on the ground and things like that. God has given us this earth to steward, to take care of, to care over. And God cares about the earth. He spent six days, well, five days, and then one day for us. He spent five days creating it, so I would think he cares about it. And yet he gives us dominion over it. We, we see that God shares his rule over it. God rightly is the Lord of the earth and can do whatever he wants with it, but he chooses to give it into our hands to care for and protect. This is, is kind of like, you know, parents who have little kids, you, you sometimes have your kids help you like in the kitchen or with laundry or stuff like that. Sure, you could probably do it better. You could probably do it faster. It might be easier to do it on your own, but you do it with your kids. Why? not because they're going to do the best job, not because it's going to end up looking the prettiest or tasting the best, but because you care about them, because you value their work, and you cherish the picture of the dog with the head that's bigger than its body and seven legs and two tails because you love that child. And that's a pretty creative child. We also see this in the very beginning when God gives Adam the role of naming the animals. I'm sure God already had a name for all of them, probably a first name for all of them, but he allows Adam to name all the animals because he wants to give Adam value and worth and some skin in the game. Which brings up the question, why did God create the earth in the first place? Is it just a place for us to inhabit or is there something else? Well, as you begin to study Scripture, you see over and over again, God has created the earth and the universe as a whole to display His glory so that His name would go out into the ends of the earth and be proclaimed. That It says in one part of Scripture that one day the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth like water covers the sea. That's the end goal. God wants His name out there. The earth is, in a sense, God's viral marketing campaign. And yet he put us in charge of it. Why? I don't know. To me, 
we screw up a lot. Like, have you been outside? Have you read a newspaper? Like, we screw up things all the time. Why would you put us in charge of it? I'm sure God could do a better job. Let's put it in a different way. Those of you who have little kids or have had little kids, or those of you who don't have little kids, imagine, you know, when you're back there serving with the little kids and you watching them draw. Would you let them paint the exterior of your house? Would you let them design your business cards? Those things both go to your reputation to some degree, do they not? And yet God has given us authority over something that is about his reputation. Why would he do that? It feels reckless, but it's not. It's because God cherishes us. And yes, God can fix any mistakes we make, but God wants us to work. He wants to cherish our work, and he wants us to praise him through our work. So that brings us to the last way that God uh, bestows glory upon us. It is bought. And we see that in two different places, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, and 1 Peter 3, 18. I'm going to read those real quick. Um, so 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. And then 1 Peter 3.18, for, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. So Christ was the righteous. He died for us, the unrighteous. He did that so that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So here we see a picture of Christ paying the ultimate sacrifice to bring us back to God. He buys our glory because in his death, dying the death that we deserved, we are freed from the prison of our sins. Not only that, but then his robes of righteousness clothe us. And we get a wonderful picture of that in the book of Revelation where all the saints are bestowed in this glorious, brilliant white linens that are perfect and without spot. And we have the honor and privilege of going to heaven and living with our king. How can we be any more glorified than to be in God's presence when we clearly don't deserve it? So in conclusion, I want to read a quote. Um, this is by James Montgomery Boyce. Um, he is writing about Psalm 8, and he says, But the psalm does not begin by talking about man. It begins with the celebration of the surpassing majesty of God. And this places men and women within a cosmic framework. It is a way of saying from the outset that we will never understand human beings unless we see them as God's creatures and recognize they have special responsibilities to their creator.